Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. In an experiment. Why is life so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing but but at some level astounding nature welcome back to the nature podcast this week could scientists develop a simple test for preeclampsia and the problem of urine in our waste i'm shamini bundell and i'm nick petrichow First up on the show, preeclampsia. This is an extremely serious condition that can occur during pregnancy, characterised by high blood pressure. In severe cases, it can lead to kidney dysfunction, seizures, and even death. Early detection of preeclampsia would give pregnant people more options for treatment, and a new study aims to allow just that, detecting preeclampsia earlier with just a simple blood test. I called up one of the authors, Stephen Quake, to find out more, and I started by asking how many people this disorder affects. Preeclampsia, it's a a very common disease of pregnancy, and it's a cause of something like 14% of maternal deaths each year globally, and it's the second leading cause of maternal death. The costs are enormous. In the U.S., it's something like $2 billion a year in care. It's, It's a very common thing, and it's something that is preventable if we're able to be diagnosed earlier. And how is it currently diagnosed and at what point will people find out that they have this? So preeclampsia is a hypertensive disease, so high blood pressure, hypertension. And so today it's mostly diagnosed when you have that high blood pressure and you're already feeling the symptoms of the disease. So when you're symptomatic is is when it's diagnosed. Our work was aimed at finding ways to predict who's going to get it before you had high blood pressure and hypertension. And so you mentioned that you were looking at different ways to detect this, looking for non-invasive methods. So what were you looking for? So we're using a phenomenon called cell-free RNA. So it turns out every tissue in your body contributes RNA into the blood. And when you're pregnant, it's coming from the placenta, the fetus, as well as all the maternal tissues. And 
RNA is the cell's way of expressing proteins. It's that intermediate step. When it wants to express a protein, the gene is transcribed from the genome, it's copied into RNA, and then the RNA is used as a template to make the protein. So it's really a very valuable measure of what the cells are doing at any given point in time. And so this RNA, is it just floating around the body waiting to be picked up? It is floating around the body, and you know much of it gets digested, but some of it survives and circulates through the blood. And that's the little bit that we analyze. And what could that tell us about preeclampsia? Because the body is changing due to the disease, you know, hypertension is happening, high blood pressure is happening, that's going to cause changes. And even before those symptoms are manifested, the changes are happening in the tissues. And so the RNA is changing because the cells are either causing the disease or responding to it. And it's those messages that we're analyzing and that are providing the earliest signals of disease. So in this study, you did a clinical trial of 199 people and you had 404 blood samples from them. What were you able to find from this and what were the sort of markers of preeclampsia? What we found was roughly 500 genes whose expression levels changed through the course of pregnancy in the women who had preeclampsia versus those who didn't. We analyzed them to try to understand which cell types they came from and what was kind of the underlying biology, and we were able to learn something about that, in particular cells of the immune system, neuromuscular cells, endothelial cells, and relate that to the sort of biological cause of preeclampsia. And then we also found a subset of those genes that would predict who would get preeclampsia before the symptoms were manifest. And so we think that that panel of genes could form the basis of a diagnostic screen to help understand who's at risk. Now, it must be said that this is all still very early. And, you know, to, to really understand if there's going to be clinical value, a large blinded trial has to be done. But it's, uh, I think, an exciting proof of principle that indicates what might be possible in the field. And at what point does preeclampsia typically occur? And then at what point were you able to detect the changes that indicated that preeclampsia was a risk? So often the onset is in middle to late pregnancy. And formally, they would say after 20 weeks of gestation, they're on the lookout for it. And in our case, we were seeing signals as early as 12 weeks. And there were these changes that you detected. Sometimes gene expression changes, RNA changes can be quite subtle. Were they quite clear? Were they quite distinct between people who developed preeclampsia and people who didn't? Yes, these were really quite distinct. And, you know, we were happy that we were able to replicate them on other cohorts. And so it was something that has us very comfortable, I think, with the rigor of the analysis and the reproducibility of the effect. What was the sort of diversity of the people involved? Do you think this was a representative sample? Would these changes in gene expression occur in the majority of people who were pregnant? Or how representative do you think this group was? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And it's one that has been an open question in the field of cell-free RNA for a number of years because it's such a young field. We went out of our way to recruit a fairly diverse cohort here. And one of the really amazing things about the study was that in our validation cohort, we had some ethnicities that weren't represented in the discovery cohort and the results held for them. And so both on the basis of the diversity of the cohort and the fact that the validation cohort was even more diverse, we're feeling pretty good about that. So you had a diverse group of people to begin with when you were just looking for these signatures of preeclampsia. But then when you went to validate this with another group of people to see if those markers were there again, 
It was an even more diverse group of people. So taking this all together, what do you think the implications of this study are? Well, I mean, we're hoping it's going to form the basis of a test that's going to save a lot of lives going forward. You know, this is all about trying to improve the health care for expectant mothers and their unborn babies. And pregnancy shouldn't be a thing that has a fatality associated with it. And we hope this work will contribute to realizing that vision of limiting deaths pregnancy. That was Stephen Quake from Stanford University and also the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub, both in the U.S. For more on this study, check out the paper in the show notes. Coming up, we'll be hearing about the issue of urine in sewage and what can be done about it. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights with Dan Fox. A new smart camera could help machine vision systems to see in a variety of lighting conditions by taking inspiration from the human retina. Machine vision systems are networks of cameras and computers that analyse visual information, making them useful for tasks such as quality control inspections. These systems need to be able to see objects in a wide range of lighting conditions, something normally achieved using intricate optical components, circuitry and algorithms. Humans, however, can discern objects in both dark and bright environments because our retinas change their light sensitivity to adapt to the illumination level. Now researchers have carefully designed sensors to emulate this behaviour by using light detectors called phototransistors made from an ultra-thin semiconductor material. The new sensors can perceive objects in a light intensity range that is substantially wider than the current state-of-the-art silicon alternatives. And as the light level adaptation happens within the sensor itself, they could also reduce the amount of complex circuitry needed within a device. Focus your human retinas on that research in Nature Electronics. Centuries ago, the people living on South America's Pacific coast carefully stacked the remains of human spines onto reed sticks, a practice researchers think served to repair damage caused by European tomb raiders. The Chincha people flourished in what is now Peru from about 1000 AD until the arrival of Europeans in the 16th century, when most of the Chincha population was wiped out by disease, famine and political turmoil. Researchers surveying ancient graves in the Chincha Valley documented 192 reed sticks with human vertebrae threaded onto them. One stick was also capped with a human skull. The researchers estimate that the objects were created about 450 years ago, around the time that newly arrived Europeans opened and robbed many graves. They think that the Chincha people may have threaded vertebrae onto sticks to reconstruct their dead after the remains were damaged by looters. Read that research in full in Antiquity. Next up, we need to talk about toilets, because the way we manage our waste can cause big problems. Even treated sewage water can contain high levels of chemical contaminants. These can act as fertilisers and cause eutrophication, blooms of harmful algae in our waterways. And the main culprit for these contaminants? Urine. Reporter Ali Jennings has been finding out how we might tackle our pee problem. He spoke with Chelsea Wald, a science writer who's quite literally written the book on toilets. 
So the sort of radical idea that people have had since the 1990s is what if we could separate urine from the rest of sewage? You could send the rest of sewage to a wastewater treatment plant, and then you could treat the urine and reuse it as fertilizer in agriculture. Just from a practical perspective, how do you go about separating urine from the rest of human waste if you wanted to collect it? Right. So the practical part is really the crux of the problem. So what you want to do is you want to do it at the toilet. Well, that's actually remarkably difficult to do. So the first urine diverting toilets had a little bowl at the front, like a little basin that caught the urine. I mean, you, these are still around in, in various places. And um, the problem with that is it requires you to aim, <laughs> which most people find awkward. I mean, the toilet as we know it is so convenient. It's so easy to use um, that people aren't willing to take a step back from that, you know, kind of downgrade. So what's happening now uh, in the world of urine diversion? There's been um, what some people think is a big breakthrough on the toilet front, so on the interface front. So the the porcelain end. Yes, the porcelain end, the bum end. (laughs) It's called the urine trap. It's from a Austrian design firm in collaboration with some researchers and funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And the way it works is that it uses something called the teapot effect, which is if you think about, you know, the way that water comes out of a teapot and sort of dribbles inconveniently down the side instead of pouring into the cup. In this case, the urine dribbles down the front inside of the toilet into a separate hole that that the user doesn't even see. And what happens to it then? What people are looking at are basically two different types of systems. One that attaches directly to the toilet. The other idea is to kind of put it in a large building. And there's technologies that work better at a, at a somewhat larger scale for treatment. Send the urine to a facility in the basement that then treats the urine. And then someone, there's going to be some kind of service probably that comes services the device, picks up the product, and, uh, and and makes sure that it gets to a consumer eventually. And what are the challenges that come with processing the urine after you've collected it? So the main component of urine is urea, other than the water. And urea is a very common fertilizer, but it's actually really hard to get it out of the urine because as soon as it comes out of the body, there's a reaction that transforms it into um, ammonia, which stinks, which is why one of the reasons urine stinks. And, um, and then, you know, that ammonia is polluting also, and it, it can carry the nitrogen off. So you can let this reaction go ahead and then deal with the ammonia, or you can try to stop the reaction, usually by raising or lowering the pH really, really quickly because the reaction happens really quickly. And then you can treat the urine more or less in the form that it came out of the body. Is there a good example of one of these systems being incorporated into an obvious use? 
So there's a pilot project ongoing in Sweden. They are doing it on an, the island of Gotland. Gotland is the largest island in Sweden. It has a lot of environmental problems. One of them is that they have water shortages. They just can't afford to flush their toilets very much. And the other one is that they have a lot of eutrophication in their water. And so what they're doing is they're creating a system where they collect urine from waterless urinals at festivals. They then take the urine and dry it and make a powder out of it that fits into conventional farming equipment. They've given it to a local farmer to grow barley. And then they give that barley, once it's been malted, to a local brewery, and they're making a local beer out of it, an ale. And perfect circularity. The beer, eventually, you would imagine, ends up back in those same urinals. <laughs> yes, in fact, yes, that's, that, that's the most delightful part of the project in my mind. How do people feel about eating food which has been fertilized with uh, the products of urine? So there's there's been a lot of fear that people wouldn't accept it just because they'd be grossed out. The research that's been done has shown that, in fact, there are a lot of people who have no problem with it. They're willing to accept it. Um, it really depends on the location. I mean, taboos about human waste vary a lot country to country and culture to culture. So apparently France, China, and Uganda would be very accepting. Um, whereas a place like Jordan, where there's more of a religious taboo on human waste in general, would be less accepting. But researchers are actually kind of more worried about the inertia in the overall system. It's just very difficult to get food companies farmers, regulators, you know, all of those players are very slow to change. And so that's where the researchers that I've talked to expect the most resistance to come from. It's not actually from individual food consumers. That was Chelsea Wald talking to reporter Ali Jennings. If you want to find out more, you can read Chelsea's feature article, also, if you want yet more toilet science, then Chelsea has also written a book on the topic, Pipe Dreams. We'll put a link to the article and a review of Chelsea's book in the show notes. Finally on the show, it's time for the briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of articles that have been highlighted in the Nature Briefing. Shamne, what have you found for us this time? Well, this week I have been reading an article in Nature about the Winter Olympics, which have just recently started, and China's plans to make them the first fully carbon-neutral Winter Olympics. So it sounds like quite an ambitious target to make it carbon-neutral, because it's a huge event, there's lots of things going on. How are they planning to do this? Absolutely. There is a lot to cover, and there have been previous attempts at carbon neutral Olympics, but China says their plans are the most wide covering, considering many different kinds of emissions and considering indirect emissions caused by the games as well. So they've got lots and lots of things in place to do this. So Beijing already hosted Summer Olympics in 2008. And they're actually, I think, the first city to host both a winter and a summer. So they have been, for example, reusing some of the buildings that they've got there. When they've been building new buildings, they've been making them to a really high sort of green energy efficient standard or making temporary buildings which have a lower carbon footprint. 
they've been doing things like using electric or hydrogen-powered vehicles. And they've made sure that all of their Olympics venues are using renewable power. Well, one of the things I've been seeing, and as you said there, they've hosted both the Summer and the Winter Olympics, is this is quite a dry region and they've been having to create quite a lot of snow like for the Olympics to occur. Seems to me that that would be quite a carbon intensive thing. How are they tackling that, for instance? Yeah, absolutely. So the snow sports are taking place in very cold, but rather dry regions. So yes, they're transporting a large amount of water, which obviously has got a big carbon footprint. And there are lots of things that they're doing that obviously you can't make everything completely renewable or or sort of carbon neutral. So what they're doing for all this excess is carbon offsetting. So for example, planting a large number of trees. But there are people who say, well, this is sort of pushing the problem further down the road. Those trees, you don't necessarily know what's going to happen to them and that as a sort of planet, we shouldn't be overly relying on carbon offsetting as a way to manage our emissions. And that's a good point as well. What has been the reaction of scientists, especially climate scientists, to this ambitious pledge to make it carbon neutral? There's a mixture of reactions, both positive about everything that's being done and maybe sceptical about whether it's as much as is being claimed. So, for example, one energy systems researcher says that the value of this achievement is in demonstrating that broader carbon neutral activities are possible. Of course, in a way, this Winter Olympics is a sort of drop in the ocean of China's annual carbon dioxide emissions of 11 billion tonnes compared to this game's estimated footprint is about 1.3 million tonnes. But they're also doing more than any previous game has done. Helped somewhat by COVID because they've basically got no international tickets. So you haven't got all the footprints from all the spectators flying in due to their sort of very tight COVID policies. And they've also just massively limited the number of local tickets as well. So that's certainly something that's reducing the overall footprint of these games. Well, what might this mean for future Olympic events? Will it inspire people to do more? Yeah, the International Olympics Committee are definitely interested in discussing with future hosts how green their Olympics can be. There is an interesting point at the end of this article. One of the researchers interviewed notes that by the end of the century, due to sort of changes in temperature and and snow conditions, the majority of cities that have hosted any of the past 21 Winter Olympics would struggle to host another. So this researcher says that the International Olympics Committee will need to be even more creative and flexible and how they host future games. So perhaps you shall hear more Olympics coverage on the Nature Podcast with respect to that. So Nick, what's your story for this week? Well, my story is another story that's been reported in Nature, and this is about the first millimetre range radio telescope to be built in Africa. Okay, so what is a millimetre range telescope and kind of how many of them are there all over the world? So millimetre range telescopes are ones that can detect radio waves of a very small wavelength, so one millimetre. And there's one that you'll be quite familiar with, Charmini, which is the Event Horizon Telescope, which famously, oh, yeah. yes, you were there at the press conference where <laughs> like they announced the first image <laughs> of the Event Horizon of a black hole. So the Event Horizon Telescope is a network of such telescopes that can actually image these things and like the edges 
images of black holes and get that really, really fine resolution. And this new telescope to be built in Namibia will actually fill a gap in the Event Horizon Telescope and allow for further images in the future. Wow. So this one in Namibia is the first one in the whole of Africa to have been built. Why... Hasn't, hasn't there been many of these before? Well, there are actually a fair few different telescopes across the African continent. And actually, it's a good place for it. There are often low populations and not much light pollution. So it's a good place for telescopes. But such telescopes require a lot of technical expertise to operate and to be maintained. And historically, it's been a challenge to find trained scientists and engineers in various parts of Africa. However, this telescope and others are starting to promote that and increase the amount of engineers and scientists that are trained in such things. And so the hope is that more telescopes will lead to more scientists and more scientists will lead to yet more telescopes and then we'll have a whole range of telescopes across Africa. And who has built this particular telescope and what are they looking for? So this telescope is actually already in place in Chile. So it's being donated by the Onsler Space Observatory in Sweden and the European Southern Observatory. And so they're going to transport it, presumably bit by bit, from Chile to Africa, and it's going to be rebuilt there and repurposed. So this will cost around $25 million to be done. And once done, it will be, as I said, one of these millimetre range radio telescopes. Part of it will be as part of this Event Horizon Telescope Network, but the other part will be for Namibian projects. So yet more exciting space science incoming for us to report on then. Absolutely. So at the moment, this telescope is undergoing a critical design review to determine where exactly is going to be the best place for it. And they reckon in about five years' time, it'll be ready to start taking in its first photons and imaging the greater universe. Oh, that's a long, that's a long time. Five years to set it up. We should have to be patient then to, to be reporting on these, on these findings. Gosh. Well, thank you, Nick. And listeners, if you're interested in more stories like these, then why not check out The Nature Briefing? We'll pop a link of where you can sign up to that, along with the stories that we've discussed in the show notes. That's all for this week. If you want to get in touch with us, then you can. We're on Twitter, at Nature Podcast. Or for a good old-fashioned email, then you can reach us at podcast at nature.com. I'm Nick Padrichow. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 